Welcome to The Bill Walton Show, featuring conversations with leaders, entrepreneurs, artists and thinkers. Fresh perspectives on money, culture, politics and human flourishing. Interesting people, interesting things. I've had the show up and going for a while and we've been having most of our guests in the studio that you can see here. Mm -hmm and decided to get the A people I wanted to get like you. I wanted to convert the show to where we could be Zooming and get people more conveniently, and that's what we're doing today. So if there's some technical glitches, we're kind of... Uh... Yeah, it's no problem, no problem, I understand. Okay, so um, are we ready to go, guys? Yeah. Welcome to the Bill Walton Show. Uh, increasingly with this show, we're aiming at taking on uh, conventional wisdom and sacred cows and maybe a little bit of deconstruction here and try to think through radically better, different ways of doing things and uh, take on ideas that may seem impossible at first, but after you think it through, uh, make a lot of sense. And today to get, uh, get us kicked off in this, we've got a, uh, a uh, title of this show, The Case Against Education why the education system is a waste of time and money. And with me to talk about that is an author of a book by that same name, Brian Kaplan, who's a professor of economics at George Mason University and a blogger at EconLog. Uh, he's also written Selfish Reasons to Have More Kids and uh, The Myth of the Rational Voter and Why Democracies Choose Bad Policies, which he, uh, I think you would include education as a part of that mix. Welcome, Brian. Thanks so much for having me. What, uh, what gave you the idea to write this book? I guess it all started when I was five and I uh, went to kindergarten and was confused by why we had to learn the things that we were learning. You know, see, even from a very young age, I felt like I'm never going to need to know most of the stuff after I finish, so why are you making me do this? And the usual answer adults gave me was to get a good job. And I looked around and said, all right, well, there seems to be something to that because Almost all the adults that I know who have good jobs did well in school, but I'm still confused about it. And you know, the, you know, the, the, uh, this mystery, this contrast between the apparent uselessness of most of what you're studying and the big payoff in the job market is what uh, animates the book. It's the puzzle that I'm trying to explain. Well, you must have figured out the system a bit. You ended up with a PhD from Princeton. Uh, uh, yeah. Uh, so I mean, I say you know, so. I mean, by the time that I was in junior high, I had something kind of like the story that I have in the book, you know, like, you know, very primitive version, and you know, but you know, but just to get ahead of myself, you know, what I say in the book is that the reason why even really irrelevant education pays in the labor market is that it certifies you, it gives you a seal of approval, stamp on your forehead. Employers are nervous to go and hire someone that doesn't have the right academic degrees, and therefore you can get a big payoff even for studying something that's totally irrelevant to the jobs because it reassures employers about your, uh, you know, your intelligence, your work ethic, and also just your sheer conformity, your sheer sheep-like willingness to go and do whatever <laughs> the system says you're supposed to do. Well, you call, you call this signaling. Uh, yes. And that uh, I, I think if I could summarize, you believe that most of what we learn in school, we forget almost immediately. Yeah. Uh, and you we, couldn't we use learned, it in the real world anyway. It's just not yeah. not germane. Yeah. Well, I, I well, that's that's interesting because I get an MBA, and the only useful class in the MBA program, only one was accounting, 
the rest of them. Sure. I don't use any of it in the, in the rest of my career. Uh, you call this, you call, this is called signaling. Mm-hmm. You compare signaling, the signaling school of thought to the, the human capital school uh-huh. of thought, which I would also call the romantic, <laughs> the educational romanticism school of thought. Could you amplify what? Sure. The, uh, well, I think, you know, like, you know, well, there's an even more magic one. Yeah. So, you know, like, you know, the usual view about education is that you go to school, you learn a bunch of useful skills, and then employers are interested in hiring you if you learn those skills well, because the skills are useful. That's the human capital view. Uh, the signaling view, which is the main one I'm pushing, although, you know, I don't think it's the whole story. I think there's something to that human capital story. But the signaling story says it's not really that school is transforming you from a bad worker into a good worker. Rather, you go to school in order to get certification in order to get a, get, a, get a bunch of seals of approval saying, you know, grade A worker or grade B worker. Now there is, you know, the really romantic view of education, which is that it's transforming your soul. It's going and preparing you to appreciate the mysteries of life and, and that kind of thing. And actually, you know, that's a story that I have a whole chapter on. There's a lot of people who look at the book and say, you know, Brian is just a ham-fisted economist who doesn't appreciate the finer things in life. And I say, well, I mean, least consider the finer things of reading the table of contents. I do have a whole chapter on this subject. Well, the thing that's so impressive, and I want to make it clear that you're not just shooting from the hip. I picked up, I I was reading you on Kindle, Uh and I went, Kindle's only slightly satisfying because you don't get a feel for the book, and I got the actual book, and I learned that we've got 40 pages of notes in uh, Uh small font type, (laughs) and you've also have 43 pages of references, which I counted up was about 800 books and publications that you you dug into and you've taken about five or six years to to create this i mean you didn't just sort of go out to the meadow one day and think great thoughts and then come back and write this uh where does your where how, how does all that reading and research inform your thinking and are there a lot of people that support this view or are you the minority uh the minority voice yeah, so let me just say that, that second question first. So there are a lot of people who <laughs> support this view, or am I, am I a minority voice? What I'll say is I'm a small minority voice among social scientists who do work in education, right? Uh, however, if you go and broaden the sample a bit, I find that when you just talk to you know, economists in general who, don't, who aren't specialists in this area, they sort of they say, well, what is it that other people think? And then when I go and talk to people who have just gotten a lot of education, I'd say a majority of them agree with me. So it's sort of a weird case where the people who know the most disagree with me the most, and the people on the other hand who are uh, who have sort of an intermediate level of knowledge are often very uh, very much in agreement with me. Uh, so you know, I'll honestly say that disturbs me. So it's like, gee, the people who know the most think I'm wrong, and so maybe they know something I don't know. Um, you know, a lot of the way that I write my books is I just read voraciously. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I am an economics professor, and I, you know, a lot of economists will, at best, only read what other economists have written. I really try to broaden my net. I try to read psychologists, sociologists, just, you know, like, like education researchers. I just try to read anyone who is thinking about the subject, not in the field, but just like, you know, like the topic, uh, you know, like who, who, is, who is the topic on their mind. And, you know, like, you know, I'm happy to admit that before I start doing serious reading, I've got an opinion. But at the same time, I really do try to not just read things that agree with me, to read whatever someone has to say about it. And, you know, often I do change my mind in the process of writing the book. And, you know, really the final product is what happens when what I expect to find crashes up against what everything I've read. And 
Well, the, you know, the thing, uh, one of the things that strikes me, th this book is both a public policy book, but it's also a self-help book. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. And, the, and the, the point is that, and I agree with most, although not everything you've been writing in this, but that it, for an individual, the signaling model can work really well. Mm -hmm. you, collect, you collect the sheepskin, you do this yeah. and that, and you get the good job, and you get you get well paid and happy and live you know live the great life. But for society, which is the uh -huh. policy piece, you think we're massively overinvested in education, uh -huh. and that uh, we could use a lot less education. In fact, one of your chapters is titled "The White Elephant in the Room." Uh, subtitle: We need lots less education. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, you know, this contrast is crucial to the whole signaling model because the idea is, again, you go to school, you do well, and it impresses employers, right? It makes you look good. You get the, you get the school seal of approval. But then here's the problem. Suppose everybody gets the seal of approval. Then it no longer really says very much about you, does it? Then you may want to get two seals of approval or a gold sticker seal of approval or whatever. And... The, what the signaling model says is that you know, if everybody goes and gets more degrees, this doesn't mean that everybody can get good jobs. Rather, employers jack up their expectations for how much education you need to be worthy of an interview. And you know, you know, one of the main implications of this is that if degrees proliferate, you'll get what researchers call credential inflation. Credential inflation, this is where you need more degrees to get the very same job that your parents or grandparents were able to get with less. Right. Well, and, and when you get in, what I say is when you go and look at the numbers, there's been massive credential inflation in the U.S. over the last 70 years. Well, now that, that's happened with high school graduation rates, too. Oh, sure. I mean, people were upset enough, enough kids were not graduating, so they just changed the standards so everyone graduated. Right. So, uh, so, I mean, actually, surprisingly, even though the standards are low still, you've got about 25 percent of students not finishing high school in time. Uh, but yeah, you lower the state, you know, but you know, but yeah, like, you know, way more people, uh, you know, graduate from high school today than 1950, but it also means that the high school degree just isn't very impressive anymore. So, uh, there's so many, there's so many facets to this. We've, we've talked about so many things we don't have enough time to talk about, but one of the other things you do is you break students and let's stick to the self-help part of this, mm -hmm. uh, into four categories. Right. High performing, medium, low. I can't remember what the yeah, four, yeah. but they're excellent, good, fair, and poor students. And you, you're advising different decisions mm -hmm. for each one of those categories. If you self-identify as a poor student, you should be thinking about your education in one way. If you're an excellent one, you, you know, you, you think about it another, and you, you make the economic calculation about what, how long is it worth for you to stay in school as opposed exactly. to uh, go get a job. Right. Well, here, you know, so here's the main thing to know in terms of self-help. You should not go and look at the success stories only. Instead, you should also consider the odds of success because a lot of people start education programs that they do not finish. And most of the payment comes from crossing that finish line, this is, you know, especially for college. So you know, if you're trying to decide whether to go to college, don't just look at how well college graduates are doing. Look at how often people who, who, did, who, are, who are similar to you successfully finish college when they try, right? And, you know, you're saying, well, how would I know? Well, you know, the best predictor of future success is past success. So if you did very well in high school, then college is likely to work out very nicely for you and you're likely to get a good job out of that. On the other hand, if you did poorly in high school, then your odds of finishing college are very slim and you should factor that into your decision of even to try. The, uh, 
educational romantics believe that everybody is the same and we should all just try a little harder to educate more and spend more money in education. You don't think that. You think that right. there is a differentiate. Well, I'm, the bell curve is a controversial word, word, word after Charles Murray, but I happen to agree with Charles that there are differences in talent levels. And mm -hmm. you're really saying this is, you got, you got to assess where you are to make your decision about where, what your next step is. Yeah. I mean, yeah, so, I mean, I totally agree with that. Although I say, you don't even need that. All you need to do is say, look, I don't need to understand exactly what's going on. All I need to know is that people who did, who do really bad on standardized math tests in high school hardly ever finish college. Right. And you could say, is it talent, is it effort? It's like, well, it doesn't really matter what the answer is that much. As long as you know that you are unlikely to succeed, you know, like, you know, like, you know so if you were to say like, you know, like what is it that makes a successful basketball player? All right. Well, you could sit around arguing all day about like, is it hard work? Is it genes, whatever. And I would say, look, as long as you know that I was no good in basketball in high school, then you know with near certainty that I will never be good enough to play, play, play professionally. And we don't even need to have the big argument about why. We just need to say, look, I don't know why, but I do know you're not going to succeed. So like, it's just a waste of your time. I think it was in my junior year in college when I was playing pickup basketball that uh, I concluded uh, in the middle of the game that I better focus on finance <laughs> because <laughs> my, my, my skills were not, were not differentiating me on the court. <laughs> yeah, I mean, absolutely. So yeah, so you know, like like you know the me and the I would say like the single most important thing to understand is yourself. So what are your odds of actually succeeding? And again, of course, if you're a parent, this is very important. And in, in a way, I would say the book is aimed more at parents than at kids because I think kids are still too immature to be thinking in this way when they're making these important life decisions. But for a parent to decide, should I be pushing my kid into college or not? This is where you really should honestly say, well, what would a stranger say about my kid's academic performance? And you know, like they're probably going to be more liable to me. And if your kid has just never been really into academics, you really might want to think about trying to find a trade that your kid likes and is good at. Well, let me plug your book because I found that the, your 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 self help piece, the advice that parent, you give to parents about how to assess what their children's path ought to be as they pick their way through the education uh, minefield, is incredibly helpful. No and thanks. You actually put some financial metrics in there. We talk about rates of return. Mm -hmm. Whether you get a 10% return or whether your return is negative. And there, you've actually created some analytics rather than just saying, well, gee, this feels right and this doesn't feel right. You want to amplify uh, on how you did that? Yeah, yeah, sure. Well, so I spent 15 months in front of this computer with spreadsheets. Right? Really? <laughs> sort of a low point in my life, but I felt like I really needed to do it. Because, yeah, like, like, you know, intuition for complicated arithmetic is terrible. And you need to actually put things down and, and, and play with it. And I, you know, again, I put a lot of time trying to figure out not only the numbers, but also trying to figure out a way to make things accessible to readers. And then that's where I came up with this idea of, you know, kind of, you know so like these ideal types, these archetypes of, you know, like the excellent student, the good student, the fair student, the poor student. And again, I had, you know, like very specific definitions of this, like the good student is someone with the average ability of someone who has finished a college bachelor's degree. Although like, you know, like you might not, you know, so basically, you know, by definition, the average college graduate is the good student. But, uh, you know, however, it could be that you have the ability but not the degree, or you could have the degree without the ability. These are all possibilities. And I try to sort out, you know, like if you happen to get a degree that overstates your ability, 
then how much will that pay off for you? Or if you happen to be missing a degree that someone with your ability would normally have, how much worse is your life going to be? Right? And you know, these are crucial questions. So, you know, like often I'll meet someone who seems very bright, very motivated, but they're missing a degree and sometimes they manage to pull together and still and still succeed very well in life. But other times I see a person who is just not getting the opportunities that their ability really, really, you know, like say really their entitles them to because no one wants to give them a chance or like, like people, people are just so like nervous to give them a chance given that they're lacking that seal of approval. Well, you know, coming back to the human capital piece of this, your view is that education system does a very poor job of giving people useful skills that they retain that they can take into the workforce. Yeah, absolutely. So the fact that you went to school for 12 years and got to your senior year in high school, that doesn't tell you that much about what they know. So what you need to do is you need to push through, get the high yeah. school degree and then the employer looks at that degree and says, okay, well, that's the, that's the certificate I needed to, to, uh, uh, to bring you into my company. But you really devalue what happens in schools. That's got it. You've got to have get, be getting a lot of pushback from uh, professional educators. Well, interesting you should say that. I'd say the main pushback I get is just, well, give us more money and then we can do the job. Yeah. <laughs> so I, you know, it's very unusual for me to meet a person who says the system actually works well. It's a very, very, uh, it's a, I mean, so among college professors are a lot more likely to say that college works well and talk, talk about how American colleges are the best in the world. Um, and this is where I will say, well, I guess they're like, you know, by some measures they're the best in the world, but that's not really saying that much uh, because, you know, even college graduates still are, you know, fairly weak on some pretty basic skills when you, when you really take a look at it. Um, but yeah, like mostly people just want to say, well, sure, look, maybe things aren't going that well, but give us a lot more money and then I guarantee that things will turn around. You know, and it's well, like, it's worked so well here. It works so well here in Washington, D.C. Yeah. What are we spending? $25,000 a year per student. And even if you factor in special ed, it's 22000 which is. Yeah. 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 You've noticed. Uh, yes. Yeah. So D.C. is indeed at least close to the most expensive school system in the country. And you, know, you might say, well, like you know, we're, we're starting from a you know, tougher point, but it's like, come on, like 25,000 a kid and, and you are turning out, you know, you know, like, like, you know, high school kids who are barely literate. And that really is true. Uh, you know, like, uh, so, you know, like it just sure seems like there's got to be a better way of doing it. But more importantly, if, you know, the fact that you were taking all this money and still failing suggests that like you just aren't like you just are not all that motivated to succeed. So you know, what, I, what I say is, look, there's a lot of research out there about how to improve learning, and I think a lot of it is quite good, but then you look at the system and they're just not using it. Well, the right? part and of the- I say, I say this, like, the system is just so dysfunctional that they'll keep blowing taxpayers' money despite the fact that there are methods out there that, that would work better. And that's where I say, look, I just don't trust you, and like, we should just reduce your funding very heavily until you get your act together. So like, you, fit, you fix yourself first before you get another dime seems like a much more reasonable deal than the one where, oh, like, we're not doing well, so give us more money. Well, I want to talk about a lot of your ideas in your book. As I sit here talking with you, I think you could have gotten four or five books out of this, but uh, you, you pack this one in. One of the culprits you see in the public K-12 system is the fact that it's all free. I'll mm -hmm. put that in quotes. Mm -hmm. And it's all funded by taxpayer money, right. so therefore there's no real price system or, or cost metrics mm -hmm. that... Uh, 
that, that we use to measure education. Uh, thinking about radical solutions, how would, you, how would you change that? Let's say we've got this massive misallocation of taxpayer dollars in public education. Let's agree we think that's true. How do you, how do you, how do you change that? Well, if you want to go really radical, of course, you could just abolish public education, and I do have a paragraph or two on that. But, I mean, really what I say is, you know, how about we go and cut spending by 30%, right? Which basically just takes spending back to the level that it was a few decades ago and see what happens, right? So, I mean, a lot of people get, they'll say, like, you got to tell me, you know, I need an exact blueprint before we can do this. And I'll say, you know, there's a strange double standard here. When, pe when people say we need more money for schools, People don't usually say, no way, until you give us an exact blueprint of how you plan to spend the money. When people ask for more money, then it's like, sure, we trust you. But on the other hand, when you say less money, that's where people say, I can't even consider your idea until you write an encyclopedia about every, uh, where every dime of, of budget cuts is going to come from. I mean, I am happy to talk about some of the most wasteful things that I see going on. Um, you know, like, although, you know, like, it's one where like, you could almost just throw a stone into a school and hit away a place where they're wasting money. <laughs> some, of my, some of my favorite ridiculous ones are you know, foreign, like required foreign languages, right? Like, what's so wasteful about that? Well, let me like two things. First of all, almost no American adult uses a foreign language on the job. It's just a fact, right? And secondly, uh, if you, whether or not you agree with that, virtually no American adult even claims to have learned to speak a foreign language very well in school, despite the fact that it's standard to do two or three years. Right. So essentially, you're teaching, you know, teaching people something that they almost never use and where almost no one even claims to have learned it, despite the fact that you're putting a lot of time, a, a, a year, years of classroom material on it. So to me, that's crazy. Well, the thing about what you're talking about is you're running into what you call the social desirability bias. Mm -hmm. Oh, you're yes. Taking on, you're taking on every piece of conventional wisdom about education that's, that's out there and that you know, right. Well, yeah, so I wouldn't go that far. I would say is I consider every piece of conventional wisdom on its merits. Some things that people think are, are actually true, but there are some, you know, some popular things are true, but a lot of them are not. And again, you know, like a, a lot of what I try to do in the book is to say, look, this is not a book about making anybody happy. It's not a book about winning friends. It's just a book about very calmly looking at facts and saying what the facts are. Right. And, you know, and just accepting that, like, you know, like the way the world works is not the way that, uh, that, 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 uh, that, you know, like the, the people want it to work in many cases, you know, sometimes it does, but a lot, a lot of times, uh, you know, like with a happy story is the false story. And when that's true, I just say it's false. Well, what is the social, uh, uh, I forget your term. Social here. desirability bias. Social desirability bias. What yeah. is, define that. Right. Yes. Yeah, so this is a general uh, idea in psychology that just says that when the truth is ugly, People are people are inclined to both say and believe lies. <laughs> All right, so you know it could be as simple as you know, uh, you know, like, am I fat? And like, what is the socially desirable answer to the question, am I fat? Right? What's the socially desirable? What are you supposed to say when someone asks you that? Well, you know the answer. Yeah, of course you not. Look better, no, darling. No, you look fantastic, darling. Right now, of course, sometimes a person asks the question and they're thin, and they're thin, and then the, then the socially desirable answer is the true answer. But the problem is that we're very sorely tempted to say that everyone is thin, even when it's totally not true. And even, of course, when the consequence of lying is like, it could be that person will die like 20 years earlier because people are kidding themselves about the seriousness of their weight problem. Right. And you can see this in all, you know, lots of other things. So did you go to church last weekend or how often do you go to church? 
I like people. Like what you can see here is that people overstate their church attendance. Maybe they're lying, and maybe they just sort of kid themselves into thinking that they're going more often than they really are. Right? Uh, you can see this in you know questions like uh, you know like like how like are you rich? Virtually no one in America or actually on Earth admits to being rich. All right, and why is that? Well, if a person comes to the room and says, "Hello, I'm a rich man." What do we think about that person? Like, what a jerk. What an arrogant, <laughs> an arrogant, insufferable, horrible person, right? So, you know, like there's a lot of social pressure not to say that. And so when you just go and ask people, even in anonymous surveys, you know, are you, you know, lower class, working class, middle class, or upper class? Like almost no one in the country says they're upper class. I mean, I know lawyers making half a million a year who claim to be middle class. And I'm like, like you're out of your mind. Whether you think you're middle class, and yet they give the answer that feels good rather than the one that accurately describes the facts. And, so, yeah, and, politi and politicians, politicians don't get elected promising uh, uh, um, to cut back on things. They get promised. Yeah, ex exactly. Well, they may get elected promising to cut back on waste, but what is waste? Yeah. Right. Yeah. So anyway, so this is a very general concept of business psychology that when Truth, uh, when the truth is ugly, people both say and even believe lies, right? And uh, what I say is this concept explains so much of our thinking about education because there's a lot of, of obvious lies about education that are widely said. And again, I think people like, in some way manage to convince themselves to believe this nonsense. I mean, everything from like, there's no such thing as a stupid child. That sounds so good, but come on. Of course they're stupid kids. They're stupid adults. How could there not be stupid kids? Right or you know, like, like there's nothing more important than our children's education. It's like, how about food? Is food more important than our children's education? Of course, food's more important than our children's education. So, you know, like, like, you know, like, like, you know, there's so many things people say that are slogans where they sound really good and people get mad at you if you say otherwise, but they're just wrong. And I say so much of our education policy is driven by this social desirability bias. So well, you know, like when, I, when, I, when I go and say, look, you're not really likely to use most of what you, what you learn in school on the job, this is where on the one hand, off the record, a lot of people say, yeah, that's right. But if you go and say this in a public forum, people start saying, I very much strongly disagree with that. I think foreign languages are going to be very important in our globalized world, and they already are. Why? I know a person who once got a job because they spoke Greek. Yeah, how many people do you know who didn't get jobs because of their foreign language that they, that they learned? And, and did the Greek speaker actually leave and learn Greek in school or did they learn it because they're a Greek immigrant? Yeah. <laughs> um, hey, let's switch gears. Uh, I, I, I've been written and write writing and, and talking on about economic growth and about how economic growth can cure a lot of ills, pay for a lot of things that we otherwise couldn't pay for and mm -hmm. raises yeah, it raises everybody up. But then I read your book, and I've been an education romantic, I guess, because I always felt like if we educated people more, uh, we'd have a more innovative society and the economy would grow and we'd all live halfway ever after. Although I read in your book now that education has no clear effect on economic growth. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so, I mean, you know, here's the key thing. So if you measure education the usual way, which is just average years of education in the workforce, then you know there's been a lot of work on this, and the usual finding is that you know is that the effect of national education on national on national prosperity is much smaller than the effect of individual education on individual prosperity. So you know, like if you raise an individual's education by year, then he's probably going to end up earning eight or ten percent more on average. But if you raise a nation's education by year, 
right? So the average education of workers in that country goes up by a year. Then, you know, like a you know, pretty reasonable estimate is that the income of that country will only go up by 2%, right? So this, you know, this might be, this be a puzzle until you, unless you believed in the signaling model and you realize, yeah, well, like when an individual goes and gets more education, they are able, you know, they don't just get more skills, they also look better to employers. But if the whole country gets more education, the whole country doesn't look better to employers, then employers will say, yeah, well now it's normal in this country to have a high school degree or a bachelor's degree, and then they jack up their expectations. It may be time to define terms. I wanted to do this earlier, but education, when we talk about education, you're talking about time people spend in the classroom. Yeah, so, the, so that, that is the normal way that we measure it. Is we, just, we, we, yeah, but, 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 it's a, but that's different from uh, acquiring knowledge and skills right. and, uh, mm -hmm. and, and real learning. I mean, yeah, yeah, so, yeah, so there, there, there is research saying that if students actually learn stuff, that, you know, that, that is better for the economy, and the, you know, that, that, that's a more complicated issue. Although, again, but there's also a lot of work saying that just spending more time in school doesn't lead leads to very little extra learning, uh, right? And, you know, the main thing is, like, when countries, when education policy is all centered around the time in school metric and the getting, you know, getting degrees metric, right? Uh, if you want to focus on actually, you know, teaching people useful stuff, then, you know, you know, that sounds like a much better route. Although, there again, what I'd say is you really want to focus on, well, is the, are they actually learning stuff that they're going to use in the real world? Right. And I say, like, you know, like, you know, when, like, I mean, like, let me this way. So one of the big mysteries that I say my book raises is, well, how is it that we have so many skilled workers if education doesn't really teach people very much, much of use? And I say, yeah, the answer is that education is basically the, uh, you know, it's, it's your access card to getting the real job training. And the real job training generally occurs on the job, right? So the real way that you learn how to become a you know, like, like you know, like an engineer like even or like, like certainly like a you know, like a journalist it's not from going and sitting in school and getting a bunch of classes it's from actually getting your first job and then they teach you how to do it well like obviously like a pilot you don't learn how to be a pilot in school right instead so so, you know, so, so, so there's a lot of value in leaving school earlier to get out and actually do something the argument staying in school is it socializes you and mm -hmm. learn you learn norms and you you in the most cynical way you say you learn conformity uh, and I suppose. I mean, I think that's all true. Although, like, important to remember, you learn that stuff on the job too. Well, that was, that was where, that's where I'm going with this. Yeah. Is if you just said, "Okay, I'm 16. I'm going to go get a job," and you're going to learn a lot about socialization and, and, mm -hmm. and work ethic, uh, working as opposed to being in school. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, school is a great way to socialize kids and teach them discipline compared to staying home alone in their basement playing video games. <laughs> if that's the relevant comparison, then yay, school. <laughs> On the other hand, if the relevant comparison is having a full-time job, which of course is is the uh, like both historically and around the world is the normal thing an adult does instead of being in school, then I say like like you know it, it's very hard to make the case for uh, the case for school at that point because they both they both you know like both school and work provide you know you know training and discipline they provide discipline they provide socialization, but. Work is is a, is better preparation for the world of work than school is for the world of work. How can it be otherwise? Well, you've heard about Peter Thiel's scholarship. Oh yeah, where he pays kids to drop out of college so they can go be entrepreneurs in Silicon Valley. He knows a bit about that. He founded PayPal and a couple other companies, and he's a billionaire. And so he's actively saying, "Look, get out of school. You're going to develop bad intellectual habits, work habits. Go out and 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 build something," which I think is very appealing. Right, so Peter Thiel has actually explicitly toned it down a lot, or no, no, you, know, you never quite said that. What he said is, I want to create an option and see what happens. 
Uh, now he may believe what you're saying, but what he said publicly is, "I'm not." He's, uh, he said, "I'm not trying to get people to drop out of school in general. I'm trying to find whether there's another path that we should explore more." And so that's the point of the scholarships: is to go and get very talented kids to not go to college. Um, so you know, of course, I mean, I say like you don't learn that much from the Keel fellows because, of course, he's able to go and pick remarkable people. We've got a couple um, minutes to, yes. before we wrap up. So, thirty-five thousand feet. So education, time in school, credentials benefit the individual, but you believe we're massively overinvested in education as a society. Mm -hmm. And if I don't know what the number is, let's say it's 10% of GDP, and most of that flows like through. Six, six and a half. Six and a half, okay, yeah. six and a half percent. Of, most of that flows through the uh, tax coffers. Of course. You're saying if you took half of that, say, and instead of putting it in education, we put it towards something else, that might have a better social benefit pay off than uh, what we're getting right now. I think that's ex you know, extremely likely. I mean, in fact, there's, uh, you have to really think about ways to spend the money less effectively. Uh, so, you know, if you, if you just put it into making more bombers or something, then fine, education's better. But if, it, but if you're talking about- What you just said is that you really have to think about ways to make it less effective. <laughs> yes, that's right. <laughs> you know, you know, like, there's just so many better ways of spending money. And of course, there's always the, like, the default of deficit reduction or tax cuts so that we you know, so that we actually just have people spending their own money and investors making making up their own minds about what's a, what's a good idea so you know that 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 would be my first choice you know first choice you know deficit reduction or tax cuts but yeah I mean you know, like you know, like you said but there's plenty of other better ways for government to spend the money you know famine you know famine relief vaccines medical research you know like especially I'm a big fan of just prizes so you know don't give someone money for what they promise they're going to do give them money for what they successfully do Right, but, you know, like, but yeah, like the like the or just like you know better you know, building roads and bridges, you know at least the roads and bridges people want to use those, right? <laughs> or where school they, like the kids will not even be there if you give them half a chance to ditch. So in the policy arena, we ought to be stepping back to think. Well, wait a second, we're educating this much. Let's let's really think big and, and figure out what what is a uh, uh, better for all of us. Uh, I just can't commend this. You more people to read this book, The Case Against Education. It has more wisdom in each page than you can find most places. Yeah, and well, uh, I thank you. I really appreciate that. And the book is now uh, only eighteen dollars and sixty cents on Amazon. So buy it now. Well, I paid more than that in the local bookstore. I hope you got the full commission on that. <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> Either way, I think I, I think I think it doesn't matter where you buy it as long as. <laughs> okay, Brian. Thanks for joining. Um, okay. Brilliant, original. I can't wait for our next conversation and uh, keep thinking great thoughts. All right. Thanks a lot. Really appreciate it. Have a great day. All right. Take care. Thanks for listening. Want more? Be sure to subscribe at thebillwaltonshow.com or on iTunes. Amazon is hiring near you. Earn a competitive wage and start as soon as seven days. No resume or experience required. Health and safety are a top priority with all of our roles and sites, and Amazon is taking precautions in our buildings to keep people healthy. Go to Amazon.com apply. That's Amazon.com apply. Amazon is an equal opportunity employer.